Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you'll become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? Okay, so you, she, all right. You're doing well? Okay, you're the only one in the room doing well right now. Just, you know. No, I'm so glad everybody's here this morning. If you've got your Bibles, um, I invite you to open them up. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. There'll be some people coming down the aisles. They'd be happy to put a Bible into your hands if you don't have one. We're, we're going through the book of Romans. We've been in there for a few weeks, and Last week, we, <clears throat> we opened up again, kind of, or we brought a kind of a little bit of an aspect to a close, but uh, today we're going to be diving a little bit further and understanding what Paul's trying to say to the Romans. Um, one of the things that I'd encourage you, uh, we are uh, kind of partnering a little bit with uh, EBC. They're, they're bringing in a, a guy named uh, Jackson Wu, Dr. Jackson Wu. He, uh, that's his pseudonym. That's actually not his, his real name. It's kind of his pen name. He, uh, he teaches over in China. And one of the very cool things that he has done is, is to, again, especially be able to explain the Bible, not out of a context in which we, out of a Western culture, understand it, but more importantly, also to show the full-orbed reality of the gospel and that it's bigger than just our culture. It's a gospel that's meant to go around the world. So if you have time to, to be involved in it, would highly encourage it. Uh, he'll be here towards the end of March, uh, beginning of April. Uh, it's a book that I've read on Romans, a phenomenal book, and so I'm very excited for you to just be exposed to, to him teaching. There'll be some morning stuff, and there'll also be some evening stuff, but you can go to EBC's website, and you can find that out. But here's where we are this morning. We have been kind of wrestling through what began back in chapter 5, verse 20, when he talked about the law that came to increase trespass, but where sin increased, and I love how he puts it here, grace abounded all the more. Now, the moment that Paul wrote that, here's the thing you got to get into your mind. It opened up a whole new can of worms for people. I think sometimes we don't fully know what was going on at this particular time because we don't come from a Jewish background, most of us, and especially even if you did come from a Jewish background, you probably didn't come from a rigid Jewish uh, family that by any means you kept the law. Now, one of the things that helped me to see this beyond just the idea of people trying to keep rules or trying to, to somehow earn meritorious favor with God, which is really 
not what everybody within the Jewish culture was happening at that time, or even like the, maybe the carrot stick concept that the stick is the law to drive us to Jesus and grace is the carrot. And then if we can just finally get that, that'll be a good thing. I think this paints the law in a really bad light. The law was beautiful and wonderful. It was given to us so that we might know who God is and see his character, but it was only intended for an amount of time until finally Jesus Christ broke into this world. Now, back in the, the, the 20th century, there was a guy named Herbert Armstrong that came along and he said, look, here's what the law is. The law isn't just for Jewish people, it's for all believers. He instituted a church which eventually became known as the Worldwide Church of God. And I don't know how many of you have ever heard of it. It's a headquarters and the college were actually over in Pasadena. But what they did was, is they kept the whole law minus the sacrificial system and their people were just entrenched in it. Right before he died in 1986, he suddenly told all of his followers, oops, I think I got it wrong. And then he proceeded to die. After he died, all the people that were kind of left wondering, what do we do, were kind of left with this reality. Well, if it's not the law that keeps people in line, if it's not the law that tells us how we're supposed to live, then how? Well, in the late 80s, early 90s, a group that I used to be involved with, or the church I used to be involved with in Wyoming, a group from the Worldwide Church of God came over to the church I was on staff at. Now, when they came, you got to understand, imagine a bunch of people who have lived under the law all of their lives showing up in your church and they start hearing about this amazing thing called grace. In fact, it was so weird when they came in, this, this couple named Clinton Renee, who just became dear friends of my wife and I, we invited them over for their first Easter dinner, not underneath the Worldwide Church of God. And we didn't think about it from this standpoint. My wife cooked Easter ham. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I love swine. I love me some good bacon, if you know what I'm saying. And I'm so thankful that the Lord allows us to have swine. So don't get me, but, but I remember watching as we're passing the pig around the table, and all of a sudden it comes to this couple who have never in their whole life had any type of swine. And I looked across at Clint and I go, oh my gosh, we didn't even think about it. I looked at my wife, I go, man, we should have just had lobster and crab and everything in this you know, moment. <laughs> but they looked back at me and I'll never forget Clint saying this to me. He said, I guess I'm learning what grace means. Now in it for him, understand this, Clint was not trying to earn meritorious favor in front of God. Clint wasn't trying to earn his way to heaven. In fact, for him, the law was just the way those that truly love God now live out the character and heart of God. It started to then change my understanding that the way we sometimes impose upon that old kind of faith is that it was rules and regulations back in the day. And now we got this freedom to do whatever we want. But after my time with Clint and Renee, I started to realize it was so much bigger than that because I even asked him one time in kind of ignorance, what was it like to try to earn God's favor? He, I remember him saying, he goes, I never was trying to earn God's favor. I was just trying to live in the way that God had called me to live. And this is the way I was taught that was called to live. He goes, now, don't get me wrong. I thought I was way better than you. <laughs> but he said, That's the, it's, it's, I wasn't trying to keep rules and regulations. Well, if suddenly now you stripped away rules and regulations from this thing, you got to understand what are people thinking? 
That's why in chapter six, Paul writes this. He says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words now, okay, so what you're saying is, is if there's no law anymore in this, we're supposed to just sin and go crazy? And he says, by no means, meganoita. That's absolutely stupid would be another way of saying it. And then he gets into this idea that we've been hammered on, this idea that we have died to sin. We no longer have to live in it. Because of the death of Jesus, we joined him in his death. And now because of joining him in his death, we are now free from our old enemy's sin. Satan was defeated on the cross. Sin was defeated on the cross. And when Jesus Christ rose, Paul says, we rose with him and we became these new creations in Christ. It was a power. It was a force. It was an atmosphere of love. And Paul called this new place in which now the people lived grace he said that's your new home I want you to live in it and understand it and that's why in verse 14 he says sin will no longer have dominion over you because why you're under grace this is now the air that you breathe this is the world that you live in don't go back into the law is what he's saying to these Jewish people that time is over why because under the new covenant now, you aren't compelled from the outside. That was the law. From the outside, it was telling you this is the way you ought to live. But in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, there was a promise that these prophets had through God that said one day the Spirit of God is going to come into his people. And when the Spirit of God comes into his people, he's going to empower them to be the men and the women that God has called them to be. He's going to stir them to obey all of my rules, all of my commands that I've given to you. It was gonna be a new time. Now again, keep this in the back of your mind. If this is true, then this is now what Paul is saying to them as he keeps going on in verse 15. If you got your Bibles, look down. This is where we're gonna to go today. Look at verse 15. He said, what then? Or do we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means? Again, that's silly. Now you think it'd be done with this. You'd be thinking like, okay, in the back of his head, Paul's like, I've nailed this home. But in the back of people's heads, they're wondering, is this just mean it's a free-for-all? Can, can I just live however I want then? Anybody that ever comes to know Jesus knows that we don't live however we want. We now have switched masters. Our master used to be sin, but our master now is an amazing master, King Jesus. And so in this, this is now the question he's going to answer, but he's going to grab something called slavery, which is so hard for us to understand in our time and age, and especially in our culture, especially going up in like the United States that has such a blight on who we are as a nation because of slavery. But he's going to grab it. He's going to grab it not only because it's intended to shock, but because he's trying to express something so big and so important. In verse 16, he's going to talk about this idea of presenting yourselves as obedient slaves. Now, at this particular time, about a third of all people inside of the Roman Empire were slaves. There was even during the first century this idea, they almost instituted a rule that these, these slaves within Rome were going to have to wear like special unique clothing or uniforms. But then somebody realized if a third of the people start finding out that they're slaves, there could be an uprising. So then they ixnade on the whole clothing thing. They said, never mind. But of the third that were slaves, here's what's crazy. Another group of people, maybe even up to a third, were people that used to be slaves that were now free. That meant these people that Paul's writing to completely and clearly understood what slavery was. But Paul's really not trying to just get a 
across maybe the side of the horrors of slavery or the awfulness of slavery, we can see it in one word, this word, obedient. Now, on one level, I love that word. I was sitting down with my youngest son, Jason, and he, one day he was, he was being a bad kid, you know, and I said, buddy, daddy just needs to help you learn what it means to obey. And he looks back at me and he goes, dad, obey is stupid. <laughs> Now, he said what a lot of us have felt, right? <laughs> obey is stupid. And it's because we don't understand what it means to obey. There's a good side of obey and a bad side of obey. It just depends on the master that we obey. And so I have to remind my children all the time, who's your master? <laughs> now, what he's doing here is to help us understand that grace does have strings attached. Let me just say that again. Anyone that has ever heard grace is a freedom that has no strings attached, just come as you are and you get to do whatever you want, does not understand grace. If you understand grace and God's heart for grace, this one now, this one who's your master who comes and purchases you out of the slave market of sin, he is now not gonna purchase you out and just let you go through life in sin. No, he's committed, Philippians 1.6, that what he began in you, he's gonna complete it all the way to the Christ, day of Christ Jesus. God is not gonna stop helping you, and I would say even this, transforming you into the image of his son. That's a phenomenal thing. But the other thing that we know about this is that every single person, all of humanity, is not under one or two or three or four types of slavery. Paul's point is there's only two types of slavery in this world. He says, look in there. There's either one that is sin that leads to death or there's another slavery, which is obedience, which we know kind of after what our studies were, which is to Christ, which is rightness. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ in here, let me just say this. Every single person that has ever walked the face of this earth, minus Jesus Christ, was all born under the first slavery, sin. Every person. There's no escaping it. And the only difference between you, if you don't know Jesus, and those of us in this room that do know Jesus is not because we're better than you, not because we're more wonderful than you, not because we're smarter than you, not because we're better looking than you, but I mean, come on, look at us. We are pretty hot. No, it is because God, through his grace, has given us a new slavery underneath King Jesus. Now, again, we'll talk about what this means when we talk about obedience. Now, with this, then, what that means for these Jews, they wanted to know, then, if law can't fix it, then what can this is something the Jews struggled with. When Jesus Christ came into this earth, right, he, he walked in front of all these people and he said this amazing statement to them, you will know the truth and the truth will what? Now watch what he says in verse 33. They answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham. Are you kidding me, Jesus? And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Watch what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a what? Slave to sin. Just so you know that word everyone in the Greek means everyone. No exceptions. Everybody. You're either a slave to one or you're a slave to others. 
If you ever think somehow, especially because we live in a place like the United States that has practiced freedom and liberation, that somehow the freedom that Christ has given us is a freedom to do whatever in the world we want, you don't understand what Paul is saying here, and that's why we need to get it. Now, what's so cool about this is when we look at verse 16 is that there was a goal of the gospel, which when you understand it to be obedience and even to look at verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be this way, that you used to be under the slave market of sin, you were once slaves of sin and become obedient from the what? Heart. Remember we said in there that God is after our head, our hands, and our what? Heart after all of us. The reality between the law and grace is not that one is so much better and one is bad. It is that one is better, but one is even better still. It's the best. One compels us from the outside. One comes in and transforms the heart. That's why those of us that have come to know Jesus know when we came to know Jesus, God didn't just change part of us. When he changed our hearts, he changed all of us. And notice what it is. It's this slavery to a a rightness. It's not only being made right, but being a part of what God is doing in this world and understanding that he is not only making me right, but we are to join him and also make things right. It's an obedience to look down there, a standard of teaching. It's the gospel. It's what the early church called the rule of faith. It's the truth that when we heard it, it transformed us. But listen to me. It's a truth that when it transformed us now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20 that you were bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You now, no, don't think you belong to yourself. You now belong to King Jesus, the great king. This is really what Paul is trying to get across to them. This is what you're signing up for if you choose to follow Jesus. You are not the master of your ship. You're not the king of your house. King Jesus truly is. And if he's not, what that means is, is that sin is the one that's king. And sin is the one that's master. Which, let me just say this. If you don't know Jesus, the outcome of that is nothing other than death. And not only death, but death forever. Paul just wanting to get this. So then what does rightness, what does it mean? Well, this one side of it, look down in verse 19. He's gonna kind of help us understand a little bit about what is this rightness. He says, look, you know, I'm speaking in human terms because I, I gotta help you get this and grasp this. So I'm using something difficult like slavery to explain though something beyond our thinking because we have natural limitations. And then he says this. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, look at this word, leading to more lawlessness. He said, this is the way you used to live. See, whether you knew it or not, you used to be a person that you were committed in this way to impurity. And the idea of impurity is, is you were created by God to now live in a way God's called you to. And you basically looked at God and said, God, forget you. I'm gonna live how I want. I'm gonna get what I want. I'm gonna get mine. I'm gonna live my life, which was the whole problem way back in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are sitting there and along comes this serpent who is more crafty than all of them. And he said to them, did God actually say that? That you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. In other words, can you really trust God? He's getting them to the point where they understand, no, this is my life and I can do whatever I want. Because then in verse two, the woman said, sure, you know, he said these various things, but I'm positive that if we don't do that, look at that last word, we'll die, which is absolutely true. 
What did the serpent say? You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And look at that word. You will be like who? God. You'll be the master of your ship. You'll control things. You will be the one that dictates the, the way in which your life will flow. Don't you get it, Eve? Don't you get it, Adam? Because he was the moron standing right next to her going, huh? In the midst of all of it, be your own boss. Be in charge of your life. To which Paul says the problem with that is, is the moment we buy into that mentality, it leads to lawlessness, which leads to low, more lawlessness. In other words, it just starts to crater. There's a researcher named uh, uh, Brene Brown who wrote Daring Greatly. And in writing it, this is what she said about Americans. She's researching all the different realities of how we're doing in the 20th century. She said, Americans today are more debt-ridden, obese, medicated, and addicted than we ever have been. For the first time in history, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, has announced that automobile accidents are now the second leading cause of accidental death in the United States. The leading cause? Drug overdoses. In fact, more people die from prescription drug overdoses than from heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine drug use combined. Even more alarming is the estimate that less than 5% of those who died from prescription drug overdoses obtained their drugs from the folks we normally think of as street corner drug dealers. The dealers today are more likely to be parents, by the way, actually the greater one is grandparents, uh, relatives, friends, physicians, clearly there's a problem. We're desperate to feel, look at this, less or more of something to make something go away or to have more of something else. She uses this term called numbing. In other words, all of us within the United States, and I would even say all of us sitting here right now in different ways, we know we're not right. Now, some of you don't know Jesus, and the reason you don't feel right or the reason that you know you're not right is because you know in the back of your head there is a God who's created everything in this world, and in knowing full well there's a God, you know at some point you're going to have to stand in front of that God, and you know you're not right. And by the way, just in case you didn't know it, that's why Jesus came. But there's something more to it. I think deep within all of us that are sitting in this room right now, we know that this life, and even in our current life, there's something not right. There's something not right with our government. There's something not right with our politics. There's something not right with our communities. There's something not right with our schools. There's something not right with our families. It just isn't right. And then what happens is, is the moment that we can't deal with it not being right, this author, what she suggests is, in all of her research, is then what we start to do is we start to do this thing called numbing. We find ways to numb. She says in there, if you're also wondering if numbing refers to doing illegal drugs or having a few glasses of wine after work, the answer is yes. I'm going to argue that we need to examine the idea of taking the edge off. And that means considering the glasses of wine we drink. And by the way, if you have wine, I'm totally cool with it. But listen to what she's saying here. While we're cooking dinner, eating dinner, and cleaning up after dinner, our 60-hour work weeks, the sugar, the fantasy football, maybe not that one, the prescription pills, <laughs> the four shots of espresso that we drink in order to clear the fog from the wine and the Advil PM from the night before, I'm talking about you and me and the stuff we do every day to numb. 
In fact, I think if I were to characterize not only Americans, but Americans in the church today, this is what I meant last week by floating. I think we're just numb. Now, this is what she goes on to say, and this is the statement that caught me when I was reading her book. She said, one of the most universal numbing strategies is what I call crazy busy. In other words, crazy busy, what it is, if you ever have a conversation with somebody and you walk up and you go, hey, how you doing? What do they say? I'm crazy busy. Good busy or bad busy? Well, you know, good busy, you know, because I got a job. Everybody needs a job. You know what I'm saying? But deep underneath it, she says in there, I often say that when they start having 12-step meetings for busyaholics, they'll need to rent out football stadiums. We're a culture of people who bought into the idea that if we stay busy enough, the truth of our lives won't catch up with us. So we're busy. <clears throat> Not only then are we busy, but then we get our kids to be busy. We have them in every single sport. Again, everybody knows I was able to paint my way through school, so I'm not anti-sports. But have you noticed the craziness of sports in our culture? The way in which kids, we've raised them to be great athletes and forgotten. Our job is not to raise great athletes. Our job is to raise kiddos that love Jesus. And the problem with sports, if we're not careful, is, and again, I'm not anti-sports or anti-things that are extracurricular activities or all the stuff that we get involved in, but after a while, we are so stinking busy that we no longer are still and quiet and know that there's a God. I would say the greatest sin within the church today is not porn. The greatest sin within the church is probably not gossip. The greatest sin in the church today that we're now going to have to answer for is the way that we numb our lives by being so busy. So therefore, if anybody thinks they can escape this one, they can't. Paul's point is, is that mentality, this idea that somehow I need to, at the end of the day, find contentment and fulfillment. I need to know because somewhere in there, if I don't find significance in my busyness, people will know that my marriage is struggling. If people don't somehow find me now busy, they're going to see somehow that I'm ashamed because I travel all the time and I'm not home with my kid. I don't want to be somehow not doing something because I fear that my child will end up an underachiever at best or a criminal at worst. I don't want people to know how uncomfortable I am with being bored. I don't, I don't want people to know that I'm afraid of being ordinary. I don't want people to know that I have this unworthy, unlovable characteristic to, my, to who I am. And if they find out who I am, they won't like me. I don't want them to know that my real life is not my Facebook life or my Instagram life or all these other lives. My real life is actually one who struggles being around people. I know I get all kinds of likes. And by the way, did you know that the reason that they came up with the concept of a like is because every time you get a like, something happens internally in your chemical nature as a human that makes you want to go get more. Crazy. And so therefore, I'm just going to be busy so I don't have to deal with reality. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, let me just slow down here for a second. You know darn well as I'm saying this that the Spirit of God is speaking into your heart, into your mind. 
You know that you have been floating through this life and in floating through this life, you know darn well you are not right. You live in a world that is not right. You know this world needs to be rescued and I'm here to give you that the answer is not gonna be found in yourself. The answer is not found in other people. The answer is not found in philosophy. The answer is not found in all the various religious systems. The only answer to being right is in the person and work of Jesus who died so that we might be made right. No other answer, but church, church, quit buying the lie of busy. Quit buying it. I know my wife and I have been wrestling with this for about five years. It's why we quit traveling to take our kids to school so far away. We realized that we needed our kids not to play sports like crazy. I mean, as a youth pastor, I've told this story before. I will never forget the dad that looked across my desk at me and said, I poured everything into my son. I I gave him everything. I trained him to be a great athlete and a great student. And in the midst of all of it, that student grabbed a shotgun and put it into his mouth and popped the trigger in the back behind the church. He said, I didn't realize I was giving him everything, but I wasn't giving him the main thing. Paul's just looking at the Romans saying, don't miss the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Now in this, you can just see this when he, when he clues it along. That's why I think he says in verse 21, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things, we just know this, is death. We're floating through life, and in the midst of floating it through, we don't realize it's just a decay that's more wickedness and more wicked and more wickedness till it lands, and it's just sin. So where's the hope? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 19. There's one side of it that's an impurity that leads from lawlessness to more lawlessness, but watch this. That's not you. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, to seeing the need of Jesus in our lives to make us right because we must be made right. We can't make ourselves right. Only the work of Jesus can do that. To then now also joining him in what he's doing in this world through making this world right, which leads to this amazing thing called sanctification. What's that? It means to be set apart. In other words, make it your life to be the men and the women that God has set you apart to be and don't settle for anything less. To be set apart has an Old Testament understanding when they would, when God built both the tabernacle and built the temple, there were certain things that he would set aside, that he would sanctify to make his very own that had a special use in how he worshiped God. And now he's saying to all of us, I have made you all for a purpose. Your purpose is not for yourself. Jesus Christ died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. In other words, in this day and age, which we're so busy, we're so caught up in so many things, Make your life about Jesus. Make it about him. Learn what it means to make it about him. Follow people that know what it means to make their lives about him. Don't settle for just what I talked about last week, just just floating through. Instead, engage yourself into this obedience. Look at verse 22, that you've now been set free from sin and become slaves to God. The fruit you get now leads to sanctification. And I love this next part about it. It's not only that, but it's eternal life. 
There's a story that Elizabeth Elliot told, and I don't know how many of you know Elizabeth Elliot. She was a missionary with her husband Jim before he was killed on the mission field. In 1976 at Urbana, she came in and amongst this group and she was gonna give a speech on this idea of the glory of God's will or being the men, the women that God has called us to be. She recounted a story about, about going to Scotland one time and, and she was at Scotland. She watched the Scottish collie that was doing what he was bred for and doing what he was trained to do. The dog was barking, crouching, racing along, herding a stray sheep here, uh, nipping at a stubborn one there, his eyes always glued to the sheep, his ears listening for a tiny metal whistle from his master. And as she watched this, she said, something hit me. I saw two creatures who were in the fullest sense in their glory, a man who had given his life to the sheep, who loved them and loved his dog, and a dog whose trust in man was absolute, whose obedience was instant and unconditional, and whose very meat and drink was to do the will of his master. What is obedience? It is the willful choice to do the work of the master. Paul's saying to the Romans, this is what I want you to do. I want you to engage yourself in this. I want you to love obedience. I want you to find your joy, not in finding your contentment in work, not finding your contentment in sports. And if there's any students here this morning, let me just say this. Don't buy into the lie that is the American dream. It's not a dream. The only dream is the dream that Jesus set out in Matthew 28 when he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach those who now obey to do everything that I've obeyed them. And lo, I'm with you, not in the American dream. I'm not with you in all these things that the world says you're supposed to do. And again, I'm not anti the American dream, but I am pro the grand dream of Jesus. Make your life about it. Because I promise you, if you're young in here, the further you get along in life, the more that you begin to live life and get married and have kids and get that house that you've always wanted and those cars that you've always wanted and the tire swing that you've always wanted that hangs out in front and the two and a half children, which is strange to me that that's how many children we have in the United States, the picket fence, you're gonna realize God is not against those things. He is not anti those things. But that's not the dream. The grand dream is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so what I want to do right now, in light of Romans 6.23, is I want to now celebrate the Lord's Supper before we go. So if I could have the, the people come forward. To, we're going to just celebrate the Lord's Supper in light of what we just learned today from the, from the book of Romans. Now here's what I want you to think about. When Jesus Christ was getting ready to leave the earth, he sat down with those guys and in light of the Passover, and again, even a connection to the law, he was promising something new was about ready to come. And in the midst of this meal, and you can go ahead and start passing them out. And by the way, there's two cups in there. There's one that has bread and there's one that has juice. Last time I didn't say this, and so some people were mad at me. Don't be mad at me. Don't be mad. Don't be angry. Make sure you grab two cups. But as he's sitting there with them, he begins to reshape their thinking. He looks at all of them and he says, with this cup that he, or the bread he held in his hand, he said, this bread that you used to celebrate in a unique way with the Passover, I'm gonna tell you something different about this bread. 
This bread is now not just a Passover bread. This bread is something unique. It's something different. It now represents my body that was broken for you. And he's going to call them now to do this to remember to me. In other words, every time that we see this bread, I believe he's calling us back to what Paul said, is that our master is no longer sin. Jesus Christ defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. And we now have a good king. Our king is Jesus Christ who died and was buried and rose again so that we might be his people. Hold that in your hand. Be blown away by it. But it's not just that. When he grabbed the cup that night, he said, this cup, this wine, it now represents blood that was going to be shed for you. It's going to be spilled. It's all form, all part of a new covenant of making you different. And so as we take this together, I hope you hear it in my voice. We're not just doing this at an end of a service as kind of filler at the end. This is Jesus's meal. He's the king of the meal. He invites us to come take this meal with him. He wants to sit down with us. He wants to dine with us. But don't miss this. This meal is not us as the head of the meal. This meal is a celebration of the king that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26, that we're to celebrate it over and over until King Jesus returns. And listen to me, when he returns, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We keep doing that over and over while this world somehow says that Jesus isn't Lord, that he's not the Christ, that he's not the one that we're longing for. There will come a day, I promise all of you in here, whether you know Jesus or don't know Jesus, he is coming back. And when he comes back, this world that seems so not right, this life that we live, that even though as followers of Jesus, we've been made fully right in the eyes of God, even though on a day-to-day basis, we don't sometimes feel right. Our king is making all things right. And so if you've got that in front of you, what I'd like to do, and I forgot to give you guys some. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you for just a second to just be alone. And I'd like you to kind of think through this. Think through the reality, maybe in this this time that we have together. Man, Lord, where have I bought into the lies of this world? Maybe it's not busyness. But just ask yourself the honest question. The beauty is, is that Jesus forgives us of our sin. But now also in repentance, we turn and we go the other way. So the next few minutes are all yours. All right, everybody's eyes up here. If you're a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I hate to tell you, but you can take it all you want, but this meal is one that's special between us and our Lord and Savior. There's a mystery that we have between he and I, and this, or between us and him in this meal. But this meal is not meant to be taken with a dour face or a sour face. So right now, all of you out there that look at me dour and sour, King Jesus does win in case you missed the end of the story. You are being transformed into the image of his son. And even if you've had the lowest low of your life and you've walked to the valley of the shadow of death or you're on this other side and you've had a week of great rejoicing. No, I'm serious. No more dour faces. I'm dead serious. 
You guys don't think I'm serious. We're not taking this until everybody looks at me that's a follower of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. And so with this bread, let's do in remembrance of him. Let's take it together. With this cup, get those sour faces off your little face. Get them. I'm serious. I'm so overtaking the Lord's Supper. Like, we have a king. And one day our king is coming back and we're going to celebrate a meal together with him. It's going to be a meal where he's identified for who he truly is. And in the meantime, this is just an hors d'oeuvre until King Jesus comes back. It's a special meal. It's a reminder of what's about ready to come. So let's do this in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus. Father, I confess to you that I, at times, I still struggle buying into the lie that is sin. And everyone else in this room can confess it. But Father, we also with one voice confess, those of us in Jesus, not only have you defeated sin, but sin is no longer our master. And I pray that we as cornerstone people, shoot, Father, for all of us that live in Simi Valley that know Jesus and love him and follow him, would your church be a church that lives passionately as people that believe that you've defeated sin and you've defeated Satan and you've defeated death. May we live with joy even in the darkest moments. But Father, would you out of this church begin to expand your kingdom, not only to Simi Valley, but Father, would you expand it around the world with the greatest message ever of Jesus. Help us to join the other saints in what you're doing. We ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So in the name of the Father, who adores you. If you're one of his, you're a son and a daughter. I can't wait till we get to chapter eight to unpack that. In the name of the son, we're called in some way a fellow brother with him, which blows my mind in Romans eight. But if you ever wonder if he loves you, Paul's point in Romans eight is he went all the way. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, who reminds us of that, cornerstone this week you are no longer slaves to sin if you're a follower of Jesus now go and live in the rightness that Jesus Christ provided by his death burial and resurrection and all God's people said okay that's not good enough seriously like we'll stay here till we're excited I'm dead serious some of you are going to start leaving and then we'll have to kick you out of the church which will be weird and all God's people said all right, let's sing.